Good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 as we continue in our Life of Christ series, and we look at the last Passover. Luke chapter 22. Our focus this morning is going to be on intimacy with God, with our Lord Jesus particularly, and remembering. I, uh, I had a great experience in my Bible college days, and I got to know very intimately a number of my professors, and not the least of which was Art Walton. Art has been with the Lord now for nearly a decade. He was a great theologian, a little absent-minded, but other than that, I really liked the guy. And even after I entered in the ministry, we would go back and forth and talk over theological things. What I liked about Art Walton was he was transparent before transparency was cool. And uh, he would talk openly about his own foibles and issues and stuff, and it was just so refreshing to me. I'll never forget the time he told about the beginning of a school year in the Bible college and seminary. The president of the school was Dr. Gordon Shipp. He, too, is now with the Lord. But Dr. Shipp wisely and like a good shepherd, could see that there was rumblings amongst the staff, theologians, and administrators. Nothing really bad, but enough for him to be concerned about it. So he brought an opening year devotion to the entire staff. And as they sat in a giant oval, Dr. Walton described himself sitting in that oval, uh, Dr. Shipp said, I want us to commit to praying for one another this year. Dr. Walton thought, easy enough for that. I can do that. And he said, and there are three types of individuals in this room I want you to be praying for. He said, I want you to pray for somebody who's dear to you. And with that, immediately Dr. Walton saw right across from him was one of his best friends. They did lunches together. They hung out together. They prayed together. And he, that guy is dear to me. And he thought of him right away and even let, you know, shot up an arrow prayer right there for him. But then Dr. Shipp went deeper. He said, now, looking around this room, I want you to pray for somebody who's distant from you. And kitty corner to him was an individual that he super admired, a fellow theologian, but not somebody he was close to. There wasn't any particular reason he wasn't close to him, just wasn't all that close to him. And so he thought, well, this is intriguing. I've always wanted to know him. What a great idea to pray for him. I'm going to pray for him. And maybe God would sort of close the gap with us. But then Dr. Shipp said, now I want you to look around this room and begin praying for somebody who's difficult towards you. And right away, just like that, he thought of somebody on the other side of the room. There was sort of a passive aggression almost between the two of them that had been going on for some time. Really could hardly put his finger on it, but he knew he didn't like him and was pretty sure he didn't like him. But he was convicted instantly. God, this man has been difficult towards me. I will commit to pray for him. For three years, the Lord Jesus Christ has surrounded himself with the dear, the distant, and the difficult. And those were his disciples. And how did he respond to them? Well, John's gospel tells us he loved them to the end. I love that statement. 
The last week of Jesus' life on earth was before the cross was a flurry of activity. In fact, he raised Lazarus from the dead the week before the last week of his life. So he was already going full on. The last week would start with Palm Sunday, which would be on the calendar next week, which would lead to such things as the cleansing of the temple, the denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Remember those seven woes he laid down in Matthew 22? The Olivet Discourse of Prophecy in Matthew 25. That teaching took place in the last week. All before and much, much more, the Garden of Gethsemane, arrest, the, the subsequent trials, and his crucifixion. But before all of that, or within all that, is the last. When I say last, I mean the last legitimate, heaven-honored Passover. The last Passover, and that's what we're looking at in Luke chapter 22. In this last Passover, I want, you to, I want you to just sort of think through this kind of a teaching time here, okay? There was a plot, okay? And the plot had to do with, this was a time to kill, all by design, mind you. Luke 22, and the first several verses where it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And by the way, sometimes you see unleavened bread and Passover, they're used synonymously. And they, they are used synonymously, although technically they were different. The Passover was one day, Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days following that, total of eight. And um, the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas. Now, that's an eerie statement, isn't it? Called Iscariot, who is one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So here you have the plot. It's a time to kill. Twice, we're told in the New Testament, Satan, Satan himself, not just any imp, not some, any demon, but Satan entered Judas. The time of the plot right here, and then the time for the performance of the betrayal. In fact, again, we won't make you turn there, but back in John's Gospel, we're told, after Judas had taken the morsel, this is at the Last Supper, Satan, what? What's it say? Entered him. Now, how is this for irony? There are some churches out there and people who believe when you partake of the bread, Jesus enters you. When Judas took it, Satan entered him. It's almost like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let some junior imp do the job that I'm cut out for. And so he takes over, Satan that is. And if you'll notice, the chief priests and scribes in verse 5, and they were glad. I mean, you know, put this under temporary joys of the wicked. And all of this takes place, did you notice? Away from the crowds, verse 6 even says that. Just to find a time at night or whenever they can do it when they're, they're not obscured. And if you were with us last week, we studied that dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. And if you think about it, Nicodemus avoided the crowds to be with Jesus. Judas avoided the crowds to betray him. It's probably worth asking, 
What is your relationship with Jesus apart from the crowds? Are you trying to be with him or against him? All of this is very sinister. But you need to remember that Satan's plotting was all a part of God's planning. And we could go to other scripture like Acts chapter 2, but we could just, the, the very, this very context, this very passage here, this very narrative tells us that. Skip down to verse 22 where we're told, look at it, it says, For the Son of Man, Jesus says, goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by, which he's, by whom he's betrayed. Look at that. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility in juxtaposition to one another. And by the way, divine sovereignty never negates human responsibility. And you have it right here. And when you feel, by the way, that evil is going to overwhelm you, remember, the plots of evil men and Satan himself all factor into the plan of God. Man is never one-ups God. Satan never one-ups God. All of the Jesus isn't some pawn here. It's all a part of the plan. And when it comes to you and me, no matter if we feel overwhelmed, when it comes to you and me, it's all for your salvation, sanctification, and joy. So you got the plot. It's a time to kill. Then there is the passion. This is where my heart is now, okay? The passion, a time to fellowship. Jesus' passion included a plan, his own plan, to pull off this last Passover. And he wasn't about to let Satan, who is not omniscient, he's not all-knowing, right? Some, some of us act like he is. He wasn't about to let Satan wreck the last moments with the most cherished people on the face of the earth to Jesus. So we pick it up, and I love this in verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus said to Peter and John, and by the way, Luke's the only one who tells us who the two disciples were that he sent to do this, get ready the upper room, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us to prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I absolutely love this. I mean, don't ever think that Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor here, okay? Remember, Satan has just what? He just entered Judas. Jesus, he's thinking, and he's thinking, when can I pull this off? Maybe nighttime, we'll get, there won't be a crowd, we'll, be able, we'll get everything together, we'll, we'll pull this off. And I can just see, you know, here's Judas, he's got the pen in hand here. Where's it going to be? Perfect opportunity. You're going to go in the city and see a guy carrying some water. What? And he's going to show you and this and that. And by the way, you might be thinking, what, how does this happen? I mean, this Passover, this place is swelling with people. There have to be hundreds of guys carrying water. Except if you know anything about Bible times, the men never carried the water. 
Only women did. And so a man carrying water would have been incredibly unusual. It'd be a little bit like saying, go down to the district and you'll find a man in a dress. Oh, wait a minute. That illustration doesn't work anymore, does it? (laughs) You get the point. Let me get to the passion here, okay? They're in the upper room. They're all gathered around the table. Judas among them. Think about that. Judas is there. And here's what Jesus says, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is the passion. This is the time for fellowship. This is the last opportunity Jesus will ever have with those nearest and dearest to his heart. And he even uses a play on words. Literally, the Greek says, with desire, I have desired. Some of your Bibles say with fervent desire. In fact, he uses the same Greek word and uses one of them for a noun, the other for a verb. In order to say, in order to intensify his passionate, heartfelt desire for these men that he loves so dearly, so intensely, so intimately. Last week, my wife and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, and our kids surprised us. They pulled it off. It was really cool. It was beautiful. They had our wedding colors, our scripture, all 10 kids together with their spouses and It was delicious, but more than anything, it was intimate. I've never cried and laughed simultaneously. You try crying and laughing simultaneously, that's a hard thing to do. We did that for a straight hour. It was so precious. And what made it so precious is because these kids know us. I mean, you think you know us? They know us. They have seen They have experienced, they have endured the joys and the sorrows and the hurts and the hardships like no one else on this planet has ever experienced them with us. They know us, and that's what made it most special, to honor us when they, I mean, they know where all the bodies are buried. Jesus' children knew him too. But way more importantly, he knew them. Just like he knows you. And have you ever thought about who we're talking about he knew? Who did he know? These were the apostles. You have a betrayer. You have a denier. You have a doubter. And you got a, a bunch of runners. Okay? Think about this. And and yet, this is what he is saying to them. These are the very people who are about to turn the world upside down. Warts and all. Jesus knew they'd stumbled. He knew that they would fail, just like he knows you will. Listen to his heart for these people. I'm not even going to put this up. I'm just going to read it to you in, uh, in John's gospel. See if I can get to it here real quick. Here's what John said. Here's Jesus, like an hour, maybe, maybe 45 minutes earlier. This is what he is praying. Before his father, 
about his disciples. You know, that ragtag, ragmuffin group that I just mentioned. I have manifested your name, Father, to the people whom you've given me out of this world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. And, and they've kept your word. Now, now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and come to know the truth that I came from you. And that they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you've given me. Notice the careful wording because Judas is in this group. For they're yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. I'm coming to you, Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, which is which is, I was like I was with them. I, I kept them in your name. You've given them to me. I, I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But, but now I'm coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they, they may have full joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. The world's hated them. Because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And so I consecrate myself that they, too, may be sanctified in the truth. That was his heart. For these individuals. Some of you in this room and watching online, as we speak, you're Christians. You have trusted in Jesus. But right now, you feel so unworthy, so useless, so undeserving. I want you to know that no matter who you are in Christ, Jesus still desires with passionate desire to fellowship with you. And he says, come to my table, which is what we'll do at the end of our time. Come to my table and fellowship with me. Thirdly, the Passover. Now we're at the Passover celebration, which is now known as the Seder In orthodox circles. This is a time to remember. A time to remember. The fulfillment of the Passover is what we're going to do at the end of our time this morning, this hour. The Lord's table. It's a time to remember. And it's especially for the kids. There are many times that I I regret the fact that we have hundreds of your kids are across the way over here. I'm thankful they're being taught the word of God. I'm thankful they're being given the gospel. But they need to experience the Lord's table. At least see what's going on here. Be inquisitive. Ask questions. The entire ceremony of the the annual Passover, now not legit, that the Jews celebrate, is centered around the kids. They, they go through a, a thing. They base it off of Exodus 12 where the original Passover occurs or occurred. And they, they, the parents will put leaven, which represents evil, the presence of evil. Unleavened bread, no evil. Jesus was unleavened, no evil. Amen? 
And they place it in different places, very conspicuous, conspicuous areas around the house so the kids can find it and they can get rid of the leaven. They even have a little chair for Elijah in case he shows up. It's all really pretty cool. We don't have the time to get into all of it. But even the, sa- the Seder, the meal, the, the bitter herbs, they'll make the kids eat it. Their tears, tears will well up in their eyes because it's so terrible. But then, oh, that's the way it was for your forefathers. Very vivid, very powerful. And then, of course, in the Exodus, you have the killing of the lamb and the application of its blood. How shocking that would have been to a kid. We try to guard our kids from so much, and rightly so. But this was intentional. The lamb was taken in Exodus 12 on the 10th day of Nisan, not the car, and kept for the better part of five days and killed on the 14th day. Now think about this. You had a cute little lamb in the home for five days. Have you ever had a dog or a cat die and have to explain that to your kid? I remember discovering our pet rabbit dead. That shocked me. But nothing shocked me more than the death of Heckle. My brother Bobby and I had two ducks. We called them Heckle and Jekyll. (laughs) By the time this picture was taken, Jekyll had gone to that big duck farm in the sky. But there's Heckle. And we go to the farm because he got too big. We couldn't keep him. We took him to the farm and uh, we went and saw Heckle, and one, the, the next time we came back, I couldn't find, saw the little ducklings getting a little bigger running around, I couldn't find Heckle. So I asked the farmer, where's Heckle? And he just goes, oh, I'll show you. And he just, he just leads me, and I'm right behind him, walks me past the front yard, into the house, opens up a freezer, goes right there. <laughs> I was traumatized. I, I've never forgotten that moment. He got a kick out of it. Those Jews would never forget that moment. In fact, it was sewn into the retelling of the story and repeatedly in the Old Testament, when your kids ask, when your kids ask, when your kids ask, you tell them. It's a time to remember recently asked our leaders in our church, if if you could choose one ailment, one disease, one debilitating issue in your life resulting from aging that you would never get, what would it be? And without hesitation, universally, across the board, they all said the same thing, Alzheimer's. Now, isn't that interesting? They didn't say lack of mobility, loss of eyesight or hearing. They went to the mind. They went to the memory. They didn't want to lose the gift of remembrance. Think about that. Jesus, sitting around the table, now says to his disciples, look at verse 17. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, take this, and divide it amongst yourselves, for I tell you that 
From now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in, say the word, remember, which is given for, hooper, on behalf of, on your behalf, for you. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for Hooper on your behalf, and it's the, what? It's the new covenant. And here's what makes it new. It's not an animal's blood. It's in my blood. This is my blood. This is the last Passover, and this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, has died for us. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you not cherish memory? The irony of all this is some of you in this room and watching online are going to die in your sins. You're not going to place your faith in the Lord Jesus. And when you die, you'll go to hell. And if you go to hell, You'll take all of your memory with you. How do I know that? Because in that amazing dialogue that we looked at some time ago between Abraham and the rich man across the great chasm, which is fixed, there's so much to learn from that. But possibly the most agonizing of all is when in his pleading. The rich man gets a reply from Abraham with two words. Son, remember. That's it. You know what I think? You, know what I, you want to know what I think is going to make hell, hell? That right there. I grant you to lose your memory on earth would be a temporal tragedy for sure. But to keep your memory in hell will be an eternal agony. And it's coming for those of you who refuse to repent and believe the gospel. The Lord's table is a time to remember, to reflect, and to repent. And for some of you, you need to close the gap. Between you and God and the cross is the only thing that can do that when you come to Jesus. So it's a time to remember. And finally, the prayer. Jesus's particularly, but it's a time to restore. Scoot on down to verse 31 because Jesus is going to take on Peter personally here. And look at verse 31. You know, you know Peter's in trouble when he starts off by saying, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, Satan was a busy guy during this time. Indwelling Judas, influencing Peter. In fact, he demanded. By the way, that's what the word means. Some translations have the word asked. It, this is the only time this word is ever used in the New Testament. Satan has demanded. He demanded from God an opportunity to bring Peter down. It shouldn't be surprising. Do you remember when Satan dialogued with God himself over Job? Remember that? 
Let me give you a couple of windows into that first dialogue. Here's chapter 1, verse 11. Here's Satan talking to God. But stretch out your hand. Touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. Does that not sound like a demand? And God allowed it. Second time around. Didn't work the first time. So he comes back to God and has a debate with God. Here's what he says in chapter 2. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. He'll curse you to your face. Again, a demand. Don't ask me to explain how this works, that God would allow any kind of a request from Satan, but he did. Yes, in the sovereignty of God, Satan, demand, his demand was allowed as it would be with Peter. And, and here's the demand. Satan has demanded to be able to sift you. The word means to sieve, like a sieve, sifting stuff through. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And by the way, look carefully at the text. Jesus isn't referring to the results of the process of sifting. He's referring to the sifting itself. Satan can sift us. God can save us. Amen? That very night, Satan created circumstances whereby Peter would deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. But picture the moment. I mean, if you can, here's Jesus saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you. And the you is plural, so he's talking about all the disciples, but specifically Peter. He's asked to sift you like wheat. Can you imagine? Satan has asked. He's demanding for you. Jesus is saying this to Peter. I mean, what would you do if, you're, if it were me? I'd say, yeah, like, what did you tell him? I mean, you'd half expect Jesus to say, hey, 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 no worries, bro. I got you covered. Not, nothing's going to... He doesn't say that at all. Because he would sift him like wheat. What did Jesus say? Now, here's what he said. But I've prayed for you. And when you're recovered... When you're restored, go strengthen the brethren. That's what he said to him. I prayed for you. By the way, that's the kind of relation I want, relationship that I want with Satan. When he knocks, Jesus answers. Amen? <laughs> Who's answering your door? Who's answering your door? Peter would fail that night, but Jesus didn't because Jesus never prayed without getting an answer. And Peter would be restored when it was all said and done. Christian, follower of Jesus, when you fail, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2, my little technon, my little born one, my little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's what you have, whoever lives to make intercession for you, which is a very nice thing for him to do, by the way. So whether you are distant from Jesus, Christian, or your life has made it difficult toward him, if you're a Christian, you are always dear to him.
and he desires to have fellowship. But some of you need to close the gap. You need to close the distance. You can do it right now, which is the intention of the Lord's table, to close the gap, to get a reset. But some of you have never been born again. You have never been saved. And you will die in your sins. And you will take your memories with you. And that will be the hell that you'll live with forever. And then some. Don't do that. Don't do that. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, remember him now. Remember that he is the last Passover. That will... If he becomes your Passover by faith, then he will pass over your sins. He'll cover you and apply to you the righteousness of his very own person, and you will be safe and sound. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you for your word and our time in it. I pray for everyone in this room as we ready ourselves for the Lord's table. That this will be a time of reset. This will be a time of remembrance. This would be a time of renewal. I'm coming up with all kinds of ours here, Lord. Because for some, it is a time of repentance. And maybe all of us here, we've got something to say we're sorry for. Turn away from. Lord, there might be people in our own lives that are distant from us people in our own lives that are difficult toward us. This is a time to get those things taken care of, so help us to that end, Lord. Help us to that end. And I do pray for those who are outside of you. The gap is eternal. The memories will horrify them forever. May they repent and believe the gospel that Christ died and rose again for them today. But God, I pray now as we go to your table, it would be of most precious time we ask. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.